Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. And glad you're with us this week. There has been a fairly significant number of changes to the DoD acquisition system coming from Capitol Hill over the past five years. Now I think it's fair to say that a lot of the action has moved inside the department. DoD somewhat quietly is making some big changes this year, completely overhauling big parts of its training system for the acquisition workforce in an initiative called Back to Basics. Meanwhile, DoD's latest rewrite of its main acquisition policy instruction, the DoD 5000 series, as it's known, is coming into focus. The shorthand for the latest rewrite is the Adaptive Acquisition Framework. We're going to spend this week's show digging into the AAF. Our guest for this is Mike Kulikin. He is a professor of program management at Defense Acquisition University, and he's leading DOU's efforts to build instructional material for the new framework. He kicks off our conversation by walking us through the six tenets that underpin the AAF. Those tenets are to simplify acquisition policy, to go from a mindset of tailoring in things into your acquisition strategy, vice tailoring out, which is what we did under the old system to empower program managers, to facilitate data-driven analysis, actively manage risk, and finally to emphasize sustainment. And the sustainment piece is a big one because a lot of our dollars in our weapon systems are in sustainment. So if we don't emphasize that upfront and pay attention to it, then um, it can really drive the cost in the out years. So those are the six tenets that, that, that was built on. And then out of those tenets and out of the some of the new authorities that Congress has given us over the past few years. So think middle tier of acquisition, a, a lot of the, um, the software acquisition authorities that have, that have come out and continue to come out from Congress. It made sense to go from that one overarching business model we had with the old 5,000.02. So you're talking, it was closing that 200 pages as things kept getting adding to it and breaking that out into smaller digestible pieces of policy, which when we talk about the acquisition ones, those are the six pathways. And then there's the other functional pieces that come out, the cybersecurity, engineering, test evaluation, and those. We're breaking them into smaller chunks to make it, again, that empowerment of, for the program managers to make it easier for them to select the path that they need to go down. Was was this really an, an innovation in terms of that breaking apart the, the, the main 5,000 instruction? Had it ever been done this way before or, or historically has really the body of the instruction always been in one giant hard-to-digest document? So... Um, I'm going to be careful and answer what's in my, um, what I know. So I can tell you from when I started acquisition, which was right around, right around 98 or 99, when I got to the Harrier program office in, um, at NavAir, um, it was the, the 5,000.02 of, of the type of thing we have now where, where, where it's one instruction, but we also didn't have a lot of, you know, we, back then we didn't really think about software that much separately. We kind of had a way, way that we did software and we had kept doing it. Um, you know, obviously we didn't have the middle tier authority. So as, as Congress really helps us out to figure out how can we get, and I, I love this phrase, acquisition at the speed of relevance, and they give us more authorities, we needed to think differently about how how we give that policy to the acquisition workforce. And I, I think something else that, that really is new here is that, that traditionally the 5000 series has been very far focused, and it tells you how to use the federal acquisition regulation and the DFARS, whereas... This new series really does bring in some of those new congressional authorities that you mentioned, like OTAs and middle tier acquisition, and, and puts them all puts them in the pathways, basically, right? 
So when we talk about the 5,000 series, uh, the, the, the six pathways, 5,000.02, we're talking about acquisition authorities, mm-hmm. about how, how we do program management and the other functional areas in order to put a, a program together. When we're talking the FAR and the DFARs, OTAs being, being in there, we're talking about contractual ways to help us do it. So I just want to make sure that we don't, because we, we hear a lot of, oh, the, you know, these new authorities where we do MTA and OTA, and it's great. It's a, it's a small, but it's an important um, separation to think about those two. One is how we do the work to get there. The other is the work that we do to get it on contract and get that work into the hands of our um, contractors. Right. Yeah, that's an important distinction. I'm glad you raised that. I think a lot of the principles that you mentioned are, are pretty pretty easy to understand and pretty well understood already, and we'll go through some of those more as we continue the conversation. But tailoring things in as distinct from tailoring things out, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what, what that actually means? So I've spent a lot of my time talking to different classes at DAU, talking to different organizations about the adaptive acquisition framework. And when I would talk about tailoring out versus tailoring in, what I started to do was I would say to classes, well, now with tailoring in, we start with a blank slate and we pick and choose those regulatory items that we need in order to be successful based on the unique characteristics of our program. And fortunately, early on, I got pushed back from another DAU faculty member. And it, this instructor said to me, you don't really start from a blank slate. We start from whether you're doing middle tier or software or major capabilities acquisition, there's a list of things that you have to do. Some of it's statutory. And again, we don't we don't tailor statutory requirements. We follow the law and, and, and do those. Um, but there's other regulatory ones that you're, that you're going to do. So you take that, what is now a much smaller list of statutory and regulatory things that you're going to do. And then you start to add in the pieces that make sense that help manage the risk in your specific program. The tailoring out one was every program you do starts with this enormous list of statutory and regulatory items. And then you pull out the ones that you don't think you need for your program. So here's the analogy I use for this is think about you want to go and get a hamburger at a really nice restaurant and you're going to order it. And the way it comes is it comes with probably bacon and cheese and lettuce and tomatoes and, and on and on and on. And if you don't want that, then you have to say to them, well, what I want you, there, there's a couple different ways. You can either say, when you bring it to me, take the onion off, the tomato off, the lettuce, and try to figure out how to take those things off and get what you want. Or you can just, like what I do is I just order it and then I pull off whatever I don't want and throw it aside. Again, it's a, it, it ends up being, takes more time and it's a waste. But if you think back to, you remember Fuddruckers that's out oh, there? Yeah. yeah. So I think of tailoring in as Fuddruckers, where you don't start with a blank slate. You get your, you get your patty and you get your, your bun. And then you go over to that, that smorgasbord, which might not be a good word for Fuddruckers, but still. And then you, you tailor in exactly how you want that hamburger to be. So to, to extend your Fuddruckers analogy without torturing it too much, it, it sounds like this really does require, if not entirely new skill sets, at least new ways of thinking for the acquisition workforce, because they're going to have to have a solid understanding of what all those menu options actually are that are available to be tailed in. So how, how big a training challenge is that? So it would be a tremendous challenge. However, at the during the creation of AAF, Ms. Cummings directed that we create a companion website so that as AAF came out, which was it, it really the majority of the, um, the pathways and 5000.02 came out um, about a year ago, is we also launched a website 
So aaf.dau.edu. And what that did was that took, instead of having the workforce have to go out and find all these policies and what does tailoring in mean and how, how do the pathways work, we created this website that pulls all of that together. So they have, they have access to all of the policies, the, the straight PDF policies that exist up at Washington Headquarters Service. Then they have guidance on um, how to use the pathways, how, to do the, how tailoring works, some examples. And then for each pathway, it breaks it out into the individual steps of the pathways that we also complement with what we call powerful examples. Think lessons learned, videos, those types of things of, of programs that have been successful or programs that are starting to be successful in some of the cases like software, as well as frequently asked questions. And that website is a continuously growing tool that's there for the acquisition workforce to, to really help get them started and get them to really to understand from where, the, where they are. And that, that's taken the, that, that training burden that's, that's still there. It, it, it's going to be an ongoing burden to get the training done. But that website's gone a long way to helping move the, um, move the bar forward. I want to come back to the the website and DAU's role in all this later on, but but let's talk a bit more about the pathways first. How how do the how do the pathways play into AAF? How do they function? How are they structured? So again, the the old five thousand dot two was a one size fits all business model, and as as we spoke about earlier, as Congress has given us additional authorities, um, as we've come to realize not realize but um, acknowledge more and more the, that every program is unique and has unique characteristics. It just made more sense to break it out for program managers to simplify what, they're, what they were looking at. And the decision was to make it into these six pathways. So it's um, urgent capability acquisition, which is one of the enclosures. And that's the, you know, the warfighter needs it, needs it right now. And we, we need to get it out there and we'll, we'll figure out a lot of the other parts of it um, as we go. Then there's the middle tier of acquisition, which, which we've been talking about here, which is that the, the two parts of that, which is the, um, the rapid prototyping and rapid fielding. Both of those are defined by a five-year period when those have to get done. There's the major Cape Bode acquisition, which is, think of that as what was in the old 5000.02. It's been cleaned up and uh, streamlined, but that's the, your, your standard milestone, A, B, and C, um, TMRR, EMD, those, those types of phases which the majority of our programs will fall into. Then there's the software acquisition pathway, which really is brand new. In fact, that there was an interim policy and the actual DOD instruction just dropped a, a few months ago. Then the, the last two are the defense business systems and acquisition of services. And, and those, those two tend to stand alone when we look at them at, at the pathways. So now it's broken out as a, as a program manager has their, unique requirements and characteristics of their program, they look and say, what does this fit into? And how can I use this pathway? And oh, by the way, I can use multiple pathways depending on the the characteristics and the risk profile of what I'm doing. Yeah. And even though there is a specific pathway called major ca- capability acquisition, correct me if I'm wrong, but but we're, we're really only using these pathways for fairly large procurements in the first place, right? I mean, Things under the micro purchase threshold aren't going to go down a, a pathway generally. What, what 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 triggers when you're going down a pathway in terms of, of size or other characteristics? Um, it's a more that's a more complicated question than I, I can probably answer here because hmm. um, those thresholds are different depending on which which pathway that you choose. Gotcha. Um, which is why why it's why it's important that we help the program managers think about where does 
which pathway is appropriate for my unique characteristics based on whether it's the time requirement that the warfighter has of, of when they need this requirement, um, the expected dollar value of it. So those are, those are all different um, types of elements that go in depending on which pathway that you're going to choose. Okay. And, and that's, that's one of the things that the website really helps out with because it will walk, it walks people through what those requirements are for the different pathways as they look at it. Are certain pathways more tailorable than others, or are they, they all just designed to be maximally tailorable? The, the concept is, again, it's one of the tenets there, is the, is the tailoring in. So that's, mm-hmm. that's a very important concept in each one of these pathways. This isn't, this isn't 100% true, but if you have a program with a lot more pieces to it, there's going to be a lot more places to tailor it. So if you have a major capability acquisition that's going to run, that has a lot of moving parts, it's going to run for a lot of... Um, for a number of years, you're going to find more places to tailor in what you need to do. Whereas if you're running an urgent operational or urgent uh, capability acquisition, which happens very, very quickly, there's going to be, there's going to be few, and there's fewer requirements for that as well compared to a major capability acquisition. So you're going to find fewer opportunities to, to tailor in there just based on the fewer things that you need to do. So I, I just want to be careful how I answer that because tailoring in is an absolute tenant of the of the AAF, but it, it just depends on what your actual need is. Mike Kulikin, Professor of Program Management at Defense Acquisition University, our guest on this week's edition of On DoD as we explore DoD's new Adaptive Acquisition Framework. Much more of our conversation with Mike still ahead. Stay with us on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Servio. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we get back to our conversation with Mike Kulikin, he's Professor of Program Management at Defense Acquisition University, and he's leading DOU's efforts to build instructional material for DoD's new Adaptive Acquisition Framework. We're discussing the differences between the six new pathways DoD built for the framework. And you mentioned that major capability acquisition, you know, if, if somebody was familiar with the old 5000.02, that's the one that would most closely resemble it. But but what are the what are the biggest differences someone would would also notice in the old 5002 compared to this uh, major capability acquisition pathway? There's a number of things. And, and one of these is just I've, I've never I've never worked policy in my Marine Corps career or in my um, time as a um, government civilian. So this was my first opportunity to get up there. And I remember sitting in a meeting, it was one of the first or second meetings that I set up there with, uh, with Ms. Cummings and her staff. And we talked about one of the policies and I said, well, and I, I, I threw out something that I thought would, would work well and would really help the acquisition workforce in the policy. And I got a rapid no from many people in the room and I couldn't figure out why. And they said, we're tr- as, as we create the adaptive acquisition framework, we want to get our policy back into be policy and not policy and guidance documents. And so what I was suggesting was guidance. Um, again, here's, here's some ideas of how to implement policy. And, and one of the things that has been stressed in developing the adaptive acquisition framework is, again, the policy is going to have policy in it. So one of, the, one of the big differences you'll see in major capabilities acquisition compared to the old 5000.02 is a lot of that guidance has been taken out and it's been moved a lot of it into the adaptive acquisition framework website and some into um, there, there will be um, guides for each one of these pathways coming for some of them already built um, software and middle tier have them. Um, 
major capital acquisition. It's the old, it's the DAG, which is going to be um, updated and morphed into um, into guidance going forward. So, so that's one of the big things. Um, another one you're going to see is in the old 5000.02. We had um, a number of different models, hybrid models of how to do an acquisition program. Those have been removed. Now it's just the um, just the one model, and then you tailor in to create the the actual major capability acquisition pathway that that you need going forward. And then the, the final one is just just things that you know every year when the National Defense Authorization Act comes out, there's there's changes to to the acquisition law. So it's it's cleaning up some of those areas as well that go into it. Gotcha. I mean, the, the answer to this may seem obvious, but but what are the disadvantages that everybody saw in having that commingling that you had, but of of guidance and policy in the same documents? Time, and what I mean by time is the time to update and, and change documents. Although we although we want our policy documents to be to be living documents. Again, you know, the, the documents that we have out right now in AAF, they will be revised. We're going to learn. We're going to change them. But it's a very formal process to update policy. Um, it goes it goes through you know you know quite a bit of quite a bit of staffing and making sure that it's um, you know all the equities are met and it aligns with statute. Guidance goes through a process as well, but it's not quite as rigorous as what policy would go through. So I don't I don't want you to I don't want to leave anyone with the impression that oh anybody can write guidance we'll just publish it and throw it out there. That, that's not what it is. But it is a less formal process, so we can change guidance. Um, more quickly than perhaps we can change policy, and 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 that's important as we as we start to learn how to use these pathways going forward. A lot of that can be put into the guidance. I think another interesting aspect of of the pathways is um, the DAU website that you mentioned specifically talks about the ability to use multiple pathways in the same procurement. Notionally, how would that kind of thing work? Can you give us, again, a notional example of a program that might pull from two different pathways? Yeah, so let me give you uh, two examples. The first is using the middle tier of acquisition, so an MTA, to help start a major capability acquisition. So one of the one of the tasks inside of a major capability acquisition is your um, you know, in fact, one of the phases is the technology maturation and risk reduction, where you're really trying to identify your technical risk, prototype, and drive down that technical risk in your program before you before you move forward. Which again, you can do inside of a major capability acquisition, but trying to set up a major program takes takes time, and it takes money. There's a lot of people involved in those as it goes forward. So what you can do is while you're while you're kicking off your major capability acquisition program, you can take the, that technical risk that you have and put it into a middle tier of acquisition program, which is much easier to get started. Um, you're not building an end-to-end product, so you have um, you have less things that you need to do, and use the prototyping side of middle tier of acquisition to um, rapidly retire your technical risk. Um, meanwhile. Your major capability acquisition program is getting started. You now um, have driven down that technical risk, and you may be able to even start your major capability acquisition program further down, like post milestone B, depending on what you've done with uh, with that risk, which saves a tremendous amount of time and money um, as, as we go forward. So, so that's one example of where you could use 
um, two pathways of one pathway into another. The second example would be, as I'm sure everybody's aware, we have very, very, very few programs now that don't have a software component, just the, the, fact, of our, the fact of our life. So if you have a major capability acquisition, you can, if it makes sense, and it doesn't always, it, it may not always make sense depending how closely the, the software and hardware are tied together, but to the greatest extent possible to develop that software in the software acquisition pathway while you're developing your, your major capability acquisition and make sure you understand those touch points where you're testing the software inside of your, inside of your hardware. But it gives you a much, much more rapid, iterative software build as you're going along with your major capability acquisition. So those are, those are two theoretical ways that you can use uh, multiple pathways together. That makes sense. The, the software acquisition pathway, I, I, I take it, is really designed for pure software. Uh, so you could use it standalone if, if you really are just doing software development all by itself. But you would pull from it if you've got an MDAP that's very software intensive, which, as you suggest, they pretty much all are at this point. Yeah. So what the, what the pathway actually says for software is that it's designed for software intensive systems. But yeah, you, you could certainly, um, d- d- depending on how tightly coupled the software is in a major capability acquisition, you could certainly pull it out. And, and, and again, that's, the, that's now the preferred way to, to do it. Talking with Mike Kulikin, Professor of Program Management at Defense Acquisition University, about DOD's new Adaptive Acquisition Framework. He's back with us after another break on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbin. Thanks for listening to On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. Mike Kulikin is our guest on this week's edition of On DOD. He is a professor of program management at Defense Acquisition University, and he's leading DAU's efforts to train the workforce on DOD's adaptive acquisition framework. Um, how big a deal do you think it is? Because this is really a first for the department, right? There's never really been a, a how, to, how to do software <laughs> instruction in the in the DoD acquisition system. How big a change is this and how big an impact do you think it'll make? I think of everything that's come out, uh, Michael Wilkins' personal opinion, everything that's come out of the adaptive acquisition framework, the software acquisition pathway is the most powerful. Um, the, the, the fact that, that we, when I say we, I mean the country, I mean Congress, I mean the Department of Defense, um, everyone has identified the fact that we need to do software better. We need to do software faster. We need to do software in a more modern approach. And now we have the authority to do that. So, so we, we put the software acquisition pathway out there. Again, it's just been signed. We have, um, we have 14 programs that are using it right now, but it, it's, it's growing with many more in the pipeline moving forward. One of the things in Ms. Cummings' office and acquisition enablers is each one of the pathways has a lead. So in software, Sean Brady's the lead. Um, plenty of other people supporting him, but he's the lead. And his approach to this is not that, oh, I'm in charge of writing a policy on software and putting it out there and um, gathering data and reporting metrics back to folks. What he and his team do is they're there to help programs figure out how to do this, to walk in there, roll up their sleeves and say, okay, we know this is different. We know there's a lot of things in here. Let us help you set up and design your, your program to go forward. And, and, and really, 
it's focusing on um, shaping the culture and the critical thinking within the program. Because again, with modern software development techniques, it's not necessarily about defining requirements and all the strategies up front before you start development, but it's getting to that, that point where you can really start development and then um, continuously um, improve upon them with the user and the stakeholders tied in very, very closely to the process. I know one of the the other big challenges the department has with software development is is kind of the lack of a very clearly defined software acquisition workforce. And I, I wonder if you think this, that this helps get the department there. So I, I want to be careful about talking things that about things that I haven't been um, deeply involved in. Um, but just in a personal opinion, I would say I would say absolutely because. Um, one of my first jobs when I retired from the Marine Corps is I worked for a um, software development company. And what I found from working with those, those developers and coders and people that, that have dedicated their life to software development is they weren't interested in, in doing traditional waterfall old coding methods. They liked the, the agile scrum, you know, those, those modern software development techniques. So if that's what we're using in the department now, I feel, again, this is my personal opinion is that, that will start to attract those people because that's the type of work that they want to do. Um, let, let's get a little more into the uh, the DAU role in the Adaptive Acquisition Framework. You mentioned before the aaf.dau.edu website that, that, of course, DAU is going to be in charge of maintaining. But bigger picture, do, do you have a different role in, in training the workforce than, than you would under, you know, let's say a previous 5,000 rewrite? I mean, I think we just had another 5,000 rewrite back in the 2016 timeframe. How's, how's this different from your perspective? So... A lot of it's the same, and a lot of it is, is, is also different. So, so the same one, if you look at it traditionally what we do at DAU, the new policy rolls out, is we do a rapid deployment training. So that really what that is, is it's a large PowerPoint that um, details, here's what the new policy says, here's the changes from the old policy, here's what's been added, here's what deleted, um, almost a page-by-page page document that, that goes through there, which is, which is a really good tool up front. So that people, it was your, that's where I got the information when you asked me the question about what's different between MCA and the old 5000.02 is I just simply opened a rapid deployment training package. Um, but it's not just doing that. It's then taking that, that information and turning it into a webcast. So we do multiple webca webcasts at DAU and we've done some in the past, but we've really expanded in the past few years of using that as a way to get out to um, not just a group of 30 people, but to hundreds of people at a time. And we'll do three or four on each um, each new policy when it when it comes out, um, and and then of course they're they're on the DAU website, so folks can look at it later. Then the um, a big one in on this one was the introduction into classes, which we do normally, but this was more intensive because it was such a big change. So my role was two parts in that. Is number one, the classes I could get to, I would just simply walk into the class and give everyone give all the students a a quick five or 10 minutes, hey, here's what's coming and here's what the changes are. But what I also did was I did a webcast simply for DAU faculty. And I, I built some briefs for them as well that they could use in their classes as a standalone, because um, you know, obviously I can't be at every class around the country as it goes forward. But, um, and then the president of DAU, um, Mr. Woolsey, made that mandatory training for all DAU faculty. So everybody had to get trained up front in how to introduce the adaptive acquisition framework into their classes. And so what I'm going through here are kind of the um, really quick to longer. 
And then um, then the, the last one um, of the, the, the traditional type things is the incorporation into our curriculum. Um, I think we have a lot of curriculum at, at DAU and a limited number of folks that can work on that curriculum or our faculty. So it's just a matter of it's a matter of time and prioritizing what classes and what curriculum it gets um, built into. And um, we're in the, we're in that process now, with really with the the PM acquisition courses being the the primary focus of um, getting this built in. So that's traditionally what we've done. Another thing we did for um, adaptive acquisition framework is we had a um, PEO forum about a year and a half ago at, at DAU. Brought in a few hundred um, PEOs, PMs. Because when we talk to the classes, we're not normally talking to the higher leadership at that point. We're talking to um, you know, the 12 to 14 or 15 level. Um, by bringing the PEOs, now the leadership at ANS had a chance to talk directly to the, the decision makers within the, um, within the acquisition um, workforce. So that's traditionally what we did. And we also um, we do special events. Um, again, the PEO forum is a great example. Um, a lot of... Um, a lot of in-person traveling around the country, talking to, to different groups. Since COVID hit, um, I probably do about one thing, kind of like you and I are doing right here, of a um, you know a webcast, phone call, of talking to groups about about AAF, magazine articles, uh, social media, all those all those types of things as it goes forward. But really, it's the the big piece that's different in AAF really is that website, and we're putting a lot of effort into making sure that we that we get that website right. That we keep it updated on, on every page. When you go through the website, there's a feedback form um, pinned to that page, and um, I see every piece of feedback that comes on that website. Um, we've had about 115,000 hits over it since we started about a little over a year ago. So it's a it, it's looking to be a very effective tool in the um, the training and education of AAF as we go forward. And are you finding at all that it makes sense to train different segments of the workforce with different emphasis areas like for example i'm imagining there's got to be parts of the workforce that work a lot more on services than they do on products or a lot more on software than on than on big complicated mdaps or does everybody just kind of need to understand the framework as a whole there's a basic understanding of the framework as as a whole just to see where you fit in but obviously if we're if we're having our software courses then it is going to focus on i've, I've spoken to a number number of them we're all come in and talk about the the AAF as a large entity, and then bring one of the um, the software team in there to talk specifically about what's new in the software acquisition pathway. And now, now that's getting built into our curriculum as well as it goes forward. Um, if we're talking, if we're talking services, we we normally teach those through um, workshops as organizations say, hey, hey, we need your help. So, um, well, that's a that that's kind of a um, a unique way of we go about them. Um, educating the, the uh, workforce on services, but, but it, it's a little bit of both. It's, it's, Hey, this is all really important to know overall what this is, but now let's get specifically into what you need to do when you go back to your desk and you start doing work. Mike Kulikin, professor of program management at Defense Acquisition University. Our guest on this week's edition of On DoD as we explore DoD's new adaptive acquisition framework. He's back with us for one more segment after one more break here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Servid. Thank you. 
Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we start to wrap up our conversation with Mike Kulikin, Professor of Program Management at Defense Acquisition University. He's DOU's lead for the Defense Department's new Adaptive Acquisition Framework and training the workforce to use it. So you mentioned the software instruction is pretty brand new, but 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 some of the other pathways have been around for a bit longer. And, and I just wonder if if the process is mature enough at this point that actual programs have started to go through it and we can draw some conclusions about what's working and what's not? So, yes, and I'm really glad you asked me that question. Middle tier of acquisition has been around for three, four years. Um, we had an interim interim policy in place for a number of years, and then the, the DOD instruction was published, I, I, think it was, I think it was late last December when it was um, actually published. So the, the instructions been out for about a year. Um, Last I checked, which was a couple of days ago, um, we have 72 current programs using middle tier of acquisition. But I, I want to highlight one program in particular, um, just because I, I just helped to work a, um, a powerful example video talking about this program. And that's the Army's um, Integrated Visual Augmentation System, or IVAS. Mm-hmm. So Colonel Chris Snyder, who's the Army program manager on this program, had a... Um, I, yeah, it is, and, and I've used it multiple times, and I'll keep uh, using it. His unique requirements and unique characteristics of a program that that he wanted to put together, and he realized that in order to be successful doing this, is that he really needed to prototype this thing, but not not build one or two prototypes and see how they go. But um, he, he was actually working with um, Microsoft as his contractor. In Microsoft's, their idea of doing work is not uh, build a prototype test it for a couple months, send it, send it up, up the chain, get some feedback, and then figure out where to go next. It's build, test, fix, build, test, fix. Um, just rapid prototyping. So Colonel Snyder said, hey, and his team said, middle tier of acquisition is what we need to do in order to do this effectively. And oh, by the way, used OTA for his um, contractual vehicle and started to move forward. And this gets to, this gets to, the, to the critical and analytical thinking piece of using the adaptive acquisition framework is when he realized that he needed multiple prototypes, he has that five-year window from that middle tier lays on you. He said, and this is not, like everything that we talk about here is not a program manager decides and just does. A program manager decides, recommends, and then his leadership, in this case, BEO soldier says, absolutely, we agree. We're going to do multiple quick prototypes, but we're not going to report our results up the chain. We're simply going to take it and move and move, and then eventually there'll be a an outcome of here's what we got to. So we got that really rapid prototyping going. He used something called soldier-centered design, where he had he had soldiers with him from the very beginning that that helped make sure they understood what the requirements were. And there, for every prototype that came out, they got that immediate feedback from the warfighter who's going to use the system. And when we talk about powerful examples, with the emphasis being on powerful. That that IVAS really is one, and it's showing the use of some of these newer pathways that are out there. And when you put that critical and analytical thinking about it, and you combine it with some of these other authorities, these, these contracting authorities that Congress has give us, given us, it's very, very powerful going forward. That's really interesting. Um, d- I- I'm curious. This is really a policy question, and it's it, it, but but I'm sure you know the answer. Why did the department makes decide that it make made sense to align an entire pathway with one authority, middle tier acquisition, and not necessarily with every other type of authority? Like, for example, there is not an OTA specific p- 
pathway? Where does it make sense to have a pathway aligned with an authority and where does it not? My sense is that because these are new authorities, and it gets back to what we talked about at the beginning, is that, that OTA is not really an acquisition pathway. It's a, it's a contracting strategy to move forward. Um, so within the, um, I'll answer your question in just a second, but in the um, AAF website that we have, we have something called a contracting cone, which is embedded in all the different pathways. And when I say contracting cone, that, that's a, a, it's a, it's a multiple, um, multiple page part of the site. And it goes into all of the different contracting strategies that you can do in order to be successful. And that, that spans across all of the pathways. So you know, the use of OTAs can, can fit into any pathway where it makes sense. And, and that's part of that contracting cone and contact, contracting strategy. The reason that MTA and software were called out to be individual pathways is there are new authorities that are, that are given to us by Congress, you know, but eventually middle tier is not going to be new anymore. But, um, and so not, not only does it help make the acquisition workforce hyper aware that they have these authorities and, and, and here's how it works, makes it easier for them to, to pick it up based on the characteristics of their program and convince their decision authority that this is the, uh, this is the right way to go instead of having it buried into with other, um, other pathways and other ways to go. Yeah, almost creates a permission structure, right? I mean, if it's out there formalized as mm-hmm. a pathway, people are going to be less nervous to use it if they've never used it before. Yes. The the leadership of um, Stacey Cummings, um, her her team up there in acquisition enablers were just, it's a, it's a group that they don't see it as their job to put out policy. They see it as their job to put out policy that truly helps the acquisition workforce, which leads to needed capability going to our warfighters and them helping programs figure out how to use these, these new pathways. Now I'm going to, um, I'm going to paraphrase on Ms. Cummings that the, um, we now have all of these, all of these policies out there. They're out there. The workforce is starting to use them. This isn't the end of the effort. This is just the beginning. Again, policy, policy lives on and changes. So we're out there working with the program managers and their teams, working with their, their leadership and hearing what's going right, but also what's not going right. And either going back and we'll, we'll update those policies where necessary, where we can, we'll update the guidance where necessary, where we can, and we'll work with the Congress to let them know, Hey, to give them recommendations in the follow on national defense authorization acts to say, here's what we're seeing from the data from the programs that are out there. And here's how we think we can be more effective with the, um, with, additional authorities that, uh, that you can give us. So th- this is a great first step, but it needs to continue and, and, it, and it will continue. Mike Kulikin is Professor of Program Management at Defense Acquisition University, also the leader of DAU's efforts to train the defense acquisition workforce on DOD's new adaptive acquisition framework. We'll post a link to the DAU AAF website that came up several times in the course of our conversation at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. If you missed any of the conversation and you'd like to hear it again, you can also find this week's full program and past episodes of On DOD on our website. Also find us on your favorite podcast platform. Just search for On DOD. That's it for this week's edition of On DOD. Thanks as always for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbi. So long. You've been listening to On DOD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 
To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.